0: If you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 9. John's Gospel chapter 9. After our summer of preaching through various prayers and prayer requests of the Apostle Paul, we are now back to our series through the Gospel of John, and we're picking up here in the first seven verses of chapter 9 that I want to read for you this morning. And if you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's holy and inspired and unerring Word. This is the Word of God, so let's give it our full attention. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is God's word. Let's pray. Now, oh God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear your word proclaimed, hearts to receive it with joy. And God, we pray that by your Spirit you would do your good work in us through your word. Pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, if you remember where we were before our three-month hiatus from John's Gospel. Chapters 7 and 8 record uh, Jesus at and around the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. And while there, Jesus made some rather profound statements about his person and his work. In fact, so clear were they connecting himself Directly to God, as God in the flesh. I mean, so, so clear were his statements to the religious leaders that conflict ensued. And the fact that all of this is happening during that week-long festival of tabernacles, one of the most significant weeks in the Jewish calendar, this is of particular significance. Because at the center of those ceremonies, if you remember, were the use of, uh, of water... And light or or fire as the chief kind of central liturgical elements of the people's ceremonies during that week, that feast of tabernacles. And Jesus draws heavily both on water and light to tell the people who he is and why he's come. Remember even what he said of himself, that he is the water of life, that he is the light of the world, and he will say that again later here. In chapter 9 and to those religious authorities who were so actively opposing him claiming their connection to Abraham their descent from Abraham that they shared the faith of Abraham that they were the true heirs of Abraham do you remember what Jesus said before Abraham was I am of course they knew what he was saying and so their opposition to him at that point turned very clearly, directly towards a plot to have him killed. Now you may recall that the first half of John's Gospel is oftentimes referred to as the Book of Signs. John records particular miracles that he specifically calls signs, and they serve as signs pointing to the deity of Christ, the authority of Christ as the Son of God. The healing of this blind man is the sixth Of the seven signs in John's Gospel and those signs are accompanied with seven I am statements statements whereby Jesus is directly aligning himself and relating himself to the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and those signs those I am statements are gathered up to portray Jesus in this light that he is God in the flesh come for the salvation of his people The first sign was Jesus turning water into wine, and then the healing of the royal official's son after that. Those happen in chapters 2 through 4, while Jesus was in Canaan, and so oftentimes scholars will refer to those signs as the the Cana cycle. And then after that, chapters 5 through 10, we have what is oftentimes called the festival cycle. And we have signs such as the healing of the paralytic, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water then healing this man born blind. And then finally in chapter 11, as we're going to see later, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now here, beginning in chapter 9, I'm convinced that what John describes happens immediately after the concluding ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles was in many ways a dramatic enactment, an illustration for the people of God about the contrast between the kingdom of God in the realm of darkness, as those great torches and elevated firepots that went throughout the city and especially surrounding the temple would light up those, those limestone walls, particularly at night, so that the light reflected off the temple would, would cut like a knife through those dark Judean nights, and the temple could be seen from miles around. And now, as the feast concludes and those torches are put out and those blazing pots of fire begin to burn to nothing, Jesus makes his exit from the temple. And don't let the significance of this miss you. The illuminating fires having given way now to nothing but smoldering dark smoke, they now fade away as the light of the world makes his way out of the temple courts. And in the moment that follows, Jesus encounters a man who has never known the light. See there in verse 1, as he, that is Jesus, as he passed by, and oftentimes, again, we have to remember that as Jesus is portrayed as just happening by something or someone, it is not happenstance. It is not mistake. It is not a random feature of a purposeless universe, but rather a part of deliberate design. For, for, for what more significant sign for Jesus to work at this point? What, what, what more opportune moment at the end of the, the feast of tabernacles as those lights are doused and as the light of the world removes himself? What is the first thing he does? He encounters a blind man. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now blindness in the first century was far more common than it is today. The ways that we are able in our modern technology and modern treatments to treat various infections, cataracts, etc., make meeting a blind person far more rare than it would have been had you lived in the first century, where because of the lack of analgesics and and various ways to treat infections, because that was not there, because there was no way to treat uh, certain injuries or cataracts, blindness was more common And so as Jesus encounters this man, he encounters not just a blind man, though, a man who by way of injury or infection had become blind, but a man who was blind from birth. He had never seen. He'd never seen the the colors. He'd never seen the light. He'd never seen the bright green of the cedar trees. He'd never seen the deep blue water of the Sea of Galilee. He'd never seen the brilliant colors of a desert landscape. He'd never seen the smile of a father. He'd never looked into the tender eyes of a mother. And because of all of this, he could not make his living at a trade. Instead, like almost every other blind person at that day and in that that region, he was doomed to the vocation of a beggar. But adding to his misery was the fact that in this time... Blindness had been associated in moral categories. It had been understood as a moral problem as much as a physiological problem. One commentator observes, quote, blindness was thought to be the darkness of the heart emanating from the eyes of sightless people. Can you imagine bearing that weight? This is why Jesus' disciples are so quick to speculate. Well, why is he blind? Is it because of his sin or his parents' sin? More on that in just a second. Now, if you were to take a careful inventory of Jesus' ministry described in all four of the Gospel accounts, you might notice that it is the healing of the blind that is the most repeated miracle that the Gospel writers record for us, done by Jesus. And it makes sense once we see that the giving of sight to the blind was one of the chief ways that the Messiah was anticipated by the prophets so long ago. I could give you a lot of examples, but I'll give you just two from Isaiah. Isaiah 29, verse 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. But also, right here in John's own account, in the prologue of chapter 1, we read these words, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christ came into the world to give sight to the blind and to judge those who remain stubborn in their sinful blindness. At the end of this very chapter, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, as Jesus responds to his accusers, he says this, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Well, the question that the apostles, the disciples at this point still, ask Jesus, there in verse 2, is very instructive about the religious world in which they inhabited Again, look at what they ask Jesus in verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now we hear that question and we cringe, don't we? What, gosh, can you imagine asking a question like that? And most of us can't. Most of us wouldn't. Hopefully none of us would. And yet, and yet, don't we sometimes have the same sort of perspective on things? Something good happens to a bad person and we wonder why the psalmist did something bad happens to a decent person and we wonder why that happened and it's because we oftentimes assume the same simplistic arithmetic that the disciples are engaged in here bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people that's a well-run universe we think and here like job's friends The disciples had a far too simplistic theology of suffering. Now, let's keep some things in mind. It is true that suffering results from sin. Now, Be careful here. Suffering is the result of sin. Had there been no sin, there would have been no suffering. But where the disciples go wrong is in assuming that there always must be a direct connection between a sufferer and his or her sin. By this time, the Jewish religion had adopted a rather mechanistic view of the universe, wherein good people received their good things and bad people received their bad things. Now, the tricky thing about this is that there's a kernel of truth to that, isn't there? In general, we can say, if you make healthy choices you'll probably have some good results. If you make wise choices, you'll probably have some good results. If you make bad choices, sinful choices, foolish choices, bad things will happen. All of that is true. The Bible, in fact, gives us what we oftentimes refer to as the law of the harvest. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. All of that is true. But... They had over-applied it in ways that did not fit every circumstance. So, So, for instance, in order to accommodate this misguided system of belief, what arose within Judaism of that day was a rabbinic tradition in which it was believed that suffering from birth, so if you have a baby that is born suffering, like this child born blind then it was due to sins committed by the child in utero. So if they were born blind, or if they were born crippled, or if they were born with some sort of a a life-threatening issue, the question was, well, it's because the parent's sin, or was was it due to, to a particular sin committed by the child while in the womb? And here Jesus takes a wrecking ball to that sort of quid pro quo system of rewards and punishments, which essentially is the fruit, fruit of a transactional relationship with God. I do these good things, God gives me this back. Now again, the tricky part is the kernel of truth that, w- that is within that. There are ways that God does bless obedience. There are ways that disobedience is cursed, but not always in the ways that we would think. And not always immediately. Not always in such a way that we can draw a direct line from a particular action to a particular punishment. Sometimes we can. Sometimes we cannot. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't run the universe that way. That's a deistic way to see things. That what God has done with the universe is much like a clock. He has wound it up to operate in a very, very simple, direct, mechanistic way, and then he stepped back and let it run. But that's called deism. It's practical atheism. And we reject that. While some suffering and pain and tragedies are the direct result of specific sins, there are many other times when suffering comes about for far different reasons. Reasons that owe to the mysterious but wise providence of God. And that is exactly what's happening here. Do you see how Jesus answers them in verse 3? Because what Jesus is about to do is he's about to say, this man is not blind as a direct result of any sin he committed in utero or, or any sin that his parents committed, but what you are looking at when you see this blind man, ultimately what you're looking at is you are seeing God at work. God is on the move. Verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now let me tell you what the disciples got right. What they got right is that they are trying, however poorly, but nevertheless trying to discern a spiritual uh, dimension to this man's condition. And I'm telling you that that's something they got right, something that is almost entirely neglected in our own day. In fact, many well-meaning people in the church would tell you that it is downright cruel to search for a spiritual dimension in the midst of pain and suffering. And we would be very quick to say, well, this man is blind, and we would explain it wholly on physiological grounds, which is not entirely wrong, but if that's the entire explanation, then it does come up short. Now listen, can all of this be overdone? Yes. Is it overdone? Yes. Do people go astray in trying too hard to connect the spiritual with everything that happens? Yes. The fact is, there is not a demon behind every germ. And there's not a specific sin behind every loss. If someone tries to cast out the flu demon from you, then you need to exit that conversation. Or if they try to break the the, the, the generational curse of lust, you need to exit that conversation. Those are bad ways to apply this principle. But too often, our problem is that in our modern enlightened arrogance, biblically justified spiritual connections to physical problems are typically dismissed entirely. Remember how in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is taking the Corinthian church out to the woodshed over their misuse and real really profaning of the Lord's supper. They had brought all of their sin, all of their divisions, all of their arrogance and lusts and carnal desires, fleshly desires, they'd brought all of that and poured it and dumped it all over the Lord's table, so to speak. And you remember what Paul says? The reason why some of you are sick and why some of you have even died is because of the way you're treating the Lord's table. Paul was not afraid to make that connection there. Now, is that permission for you to walk into a hospital room and say, the reason you're here is because of blah, blah, blah? If you do that, we're going to find out. <laughs> there will be a meeting with you. Um, so don't do that in the hospital room, please. But we dare not... We dare not fail to ever ask the question about the spiritual dimension, the God dimension of what it is that I suffer. What it, you know, the reason behind my loss, the reason behind my, my pain. But look again at the language that Jesus uses here in verse 3. And we come to this little humble clause. It's just a two-word clause, but it is of massive... Significance. In fact, I think the whole of what Jesus is saying here hangs on this little two-word clause. In the Greek, it's Allah henna. In the English, it's but that, or but so that. For the grammar geeks, this is called an adversative, not this, but that. It's not that he sinned or his parents sinned, Allah henna, but that, in order that, the works of God might be displayed in him. Disciples, in answer to your question, that's why this man was born blind, because of the works of God. Yes, there may be physiological explanations as to the secondary cause of this man's blindness yes you can draw a line between sin and suffering in the big picture of things but Jesus wants us to get that this particular man's blindness owed ultimately to the sovereign decree of God and the fact is we can say that regardless of the cause of the secondary causes in the presenting issues we can say that about everything we have lost in this life of every sorrow we have borne of everything we've suffered, ultimately we can, indeed, we should recognize Allah Hinnah. But that the work of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God, the wisdom of God might be displayed. God is not peering down from heaven saying, oh no, a man born blind, let me see if I can clean this up, I'll turn his frown upside down, none of that. No, it goes further back than that. And to the invisible past, invisible to us, of God's sovereign disposal of all things from before the foundations of the world. You remember the end of Genesis after Jacob dies and Joseph's brothers now believe that their lives are on a very, very short thread, concluding that Joseph is probably going to treat them the way they treated him. And do you remember what he said to them in order to calm their fears? What you meant for evil, what you did, what you designed, what you chose, what you purposed for evil, God meant for good. God meant. Not not God turned it, God shaped it, not merely God used it, but he meant it. That is the language of purpose. That's the language of design. God meant it. The man Jesus healed may, may never have considered God's part to play. In fact, In the immediate moments after his healing, he didn't. In fact, he didn't even know who Jesus was when he is first questioned and interrogated by the religious authorities, as we're going to see next week. He doesn't even know who did this to him. And yet, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, and the man is confronted again by Jesus, and he's forced to deal with the radical thing that just happened to his life, his body, he comes out believing. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's a wonderful thing for the blind man. And I can see how God's power was displayed in him because of that miracle. I am so happy for the blind man. Jesus healed him. But I've believed in Jesus for years. Where's my healing? Where's my restoration? Where's my joy? Where's my miracle? We've said this before, but it bears repeating that miracles, by definition, are not ordinary. They're rather rare. They aren't common. God doesn't always heal. In fact, in his ministry, Jesus did not always heal. He healed many, many people. In fact, John even tells us near the end of his gospel that Jesus did so many things that, that all the books in the world couldn't record it all. Jesus healed many. He healed many in order to show and establish his authority as the Messiah who was to come. God's kingdom had now just broken into the world, so it was right and good and appropriate. For there'd be a rush of miracles that came in with the entry of the Son of God. And yet, nevertheless, even Jesus did not heal everybody he encountered. But in the end, it's not the miracle that matters the most. What matters the most, what matters the most about this man was not the restoration of his eyes. What matters the most about this man's story is his salvation that he was transferred from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. What matters most is what we learn about him at the end of this chapter. And you know what? Let's talk about miracles. If You can consider yourself, for good reason, the recipient of an ongoing, day-by-day miracle. Because you need look no further than the fact that you once were blind, but now you see. That you once were lost, but you were found. That you were once at enmity with God, but he drove the darkness out of you and gave you light and life. Your sins were forgiven entirely by the working and willing of Jesus. Now let's talk miracles. Is there anything that surpasses that? Is there anything that Jesus did? Is there any physical miracle that he worked that surpasses you passing from death into life? Is there anything that surpasses you being brought out of the ashes and the death and the wreckage of your own sin and being made a new creation in Christ, kept forever by him? I'll take that over walking on water any day of the week. Now, beginning in verse 4, there is a very important word for us, because before Jesus actually works this miracle to heal this blind man, he first says this, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What Jesus is saying is, guys, this is urgent. You've got a limited amount of time with me. I'll be gone. And in fact, Jesus' earthly ministry lasted about three years. And he was gone. Now, there's a good reason he was gone. He went to ascend and to take his rightful place at the right hand of majesty. And he did that for our good. Because of that, he sent a comforter, a counselor, the Holy Spirit, who is just like him. And all of that is good. But Jesus is saying, look, my time actually with you is very short The time is short. The end of the ages will come like a thief in the night. It'll be here, and one generation will be the terminal generation. We don't know when that will be, but the the, the day of judgment is coming, Jesus is saying. And all efforts to turn to Christ for salvation will be exhausted on that day. It'll be over. Jesus is this preacher of the coming judgment at this point. Night is coming. The day is almost done. He's calling forth urgency out of his disciples. And because he's calling for urgency out of his disciples, he's doing the same thing with us today. We are 2,000 years further down the road of God's patience. How much more urgent is it for us to keep giving public witness to Christ? Work while it is still day. While there is still time. Now, I think the significance of this happening right before Jesus performed the miracle of giving this man sight is to say, what I'm about to do in healing this man's sight is just a sign that means something far more important. And again, as we read the rest of chapter 9, what we learn is that the spectacular miracle of, of restoring this man's sight pales in comparison to what the real point of the whole thing was to begin with when that same man finally believes. Jesus is saying, before I heal this man's sight, I want you to hear me. The clock of God's providence is ticking. The time is brief. Work. And do you see how he involves his disciples, his followers, in his work? Do you see his his wording there in verse 4? We must work the works of him who sent me. There's something wonderful about that. Jesus is not saying, you guys sit in the corner, I'll do my thing. He's saying we. He is connecting his followers, beginning with those 12 disciples and coming right down to this very room right now. He's connecting his followers to his work. and We must do the works of him who sent the Christ to us. When we love our Lord, when we love our neighbor, when we seek to make Christ known, all those ways we seek to love our neighbor and to make the witness of the gospel clear, we are working those works. The result, prayerfully, pleadingly, being that more and more people will say just exactly what this man says at the end of this chapter I believe. And then we see there, verse 6, Jesus goes about now to illustrate graphically what he's talking about. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes. He put that mud on his eyes and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Seems awfully strange, doesn't it? If I did that, you would rightly react negatively. But at the time, I don't think it was meant to be taken as anything that unusual. Remember, this is before the days of modern medicine and medical plasters, as they may have been called, were very common in Jesus' day. And in a way, they still are to a certain extent. They just look a lot cleaner now but it's the application of something with medicinal purposes or medicinal properties to a place of injury or infection. It was done all the time in that day, even as it's done an hour day. Now, it's likely that if you go to the doctor with a wound, it's likely they won't apply spit and dirt. I doubt they will, but they will apply something that has medicinal Properties, And it was thought in Jesus' day, and might I say it was thought with good reason because it actually does, that saliva possesses certain medicinal purpose, uh, properties, and it does. So what Jesus does by this action, making a, a medical plaster and applying it to the place of injury or infection, is actually not unusual. To me, what's unusual is that this man has faith to receive it. He doesn't know who Jesus is. But we're seeing the inklings of faith given to him just starting to burst through the ground. Because what does he do? This man who he doesn't know puts mud in his eyes and tells him to go wash it off in the pool of Siloam to which he must be led there, guided there, helped there. And he does it. By that time, you'd think that he'd probably had his fill with everybody's advice. But here he does it. And Jesus takes these ordinary things, mud and spit, and he uses these ordinary, humble things, this stuff of earth, to accomplish something quite extraordinary. And isn't that just like Jesus? Bread and wine. Ordinary, but for his gracious work within it. And and in fact, to make things even more unusual there, Jesus takes something that would seem to make the man's blindness worse. I mean, he's taking blind eyes and covering them over with heavy mud. But I love what Ryle observes. J.C. Ryle writes this, God brings water in the desert, not from the soft earth, but from the flinty rock. He heals the sting of the serpent not by the serpent's br- not by the serpent, but by the serpent's brass, the, the, the serpent of brass. He overthrows the walls of Jericho by ram's horns. He exalts us to heaven by the stumbling block of the cross. And certainly this is represented as an act of faith on the blind man's part, faith that we will see come to fruition by the end of the chapter. The granting of sight is a dramatic sign of the Lord's salvation. Jesus meets us in our darkness and in our alienation, and he saves us out of our sin and out of our enmity with him. And this is the sovereign work of God. The man healed of blindness was not looking for Jesus, he wasn't calling out for Christ, he wasn't reaching for Christ, he wasn't choosing Christ, he wasn't even expecting to be healed. Rather, what happened is that God met the man in his hopelessness and he granted him far more than he would have dared to hope. And this he has done for each of us who were blind but now we see. I don't, don't want to leave today without just a little bit more reflection about the issue of suffering and the purposes of God. No, per, no person in this room is qualified to tell you precisely why you have suffered in the ways that you've suffered. Perhaps it's because God is perfecting His grace in your weakness. That's a good thing, isn't it? Maybe it's been to make you a living testimony of what the psalmist writes, that though the earth gives way, When the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And your life is to be a placard of that refreshing salvation of God in the midst of calamity. That could be. Maybe God has planned that through your pain and your sorrow, you will be a blessing to others. We've seen that happen, haven't we? And that's good. And maybe through what you've suffered, you actually know more of Christ than you would have otherwise. Maybe you treasure God and his gifts more than you would have had you not been caused to steward the pain that he's granted you. In 2017, Johnny Eric Tata wrote a, a really wonderful piece entitled Reflections on the 50th Anniversary of My Diving Accident and it's well worth reading, I would encourage you to read it. Here's just one paragraph. The core of God's plan is to rescue me from sin and self and to keep rescuing me. The Apostle Paul calls it the gospel by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. I'm in constant need of saving. My displaced hip and scoliosis are sheepdogs that constantly snap at my heels, driving me down the road to Calvary, where I die to the sins that Jesus died for. Sure, I have a long way to go before I am who God destined me to be in glory, but thankfully, my paralysis keeps pushing me to strive to reach for that heavenly prize. The process is difficult but affliction isn't a killjoy. I don't think you could find a happier follower of Jesus than me. The more my paralysis helps me get disentangled from sin, the more joy bubbles up from within." She didn't get there overnight. It's taken time, years, and it will for us as we steward The sorrow and the pain and the affliction and the calamity that God entrusts to us. But I wonder if it could be said of us in the midst of our sorrow, I don't think I know a happier Christian than me. In his book, Therefore I Have Hope, Cameron Cole talks about God's promises, his hope that he found in the Lord as he suffered the loss of, of his son and at one point in his book Cameron Cole tells the story of a woman who was lamenting the death of her son in a car accident in the immediate hours after they had rushed him to the hospital and in that time a well-meaning but misguided chaplain said to her ma'am God didn't have anything to do with your son's death to which the weeping woman said Don't you take away the only hope I have. Allah, Hina, but that. This came about not because of this or because of that, but that the work of God might be displayed in him, in you, in us. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 27, asks this. What do you understand by the providence of God? And here's the answer. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules over them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, health and sickness, food and drink, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand and then question 28 how does the knowledge of god's creation and providence help us and here's the answer we can be patient when things go against us thankful when things go well and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without His will, they can neither move nor be moved. Amen. Brothers and sisters, your pain is not random, your suffering is not meaningless. Your trial, your loss, your calamity did not, go, did not come by reason of happenstance. Allah, Hina, but that. None of it has taken place apart from the watchful eye and compassionate providence of your Redeemer. And the Savior who redeemed your soul from sin and death and judgment will one day redeem your pain and sorrow and calamity. That everything that you have suffered, every cry of despair that has lifted up out of your guts, every moment of desolation, all of it will be redeemed just as surely as He has redeemed your life. Beloved, if God has saved your life from sin and death, don't you know, don't you believe that He will redeem your sorrows also? must work together for my salvation. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Father, let not Your Word and Your truth depart from us, but for Your glory and for our good and our joy in You, let it take root in our hearts. This we pray through Christ the Lord. Amen.